This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Star Stuff. My name is Cody Half Moon, and today I'm joined by, of course, our co host, Haley Osborne. Hey, Haley. Hi, guys. And today we have back with us John Compton, our resident nerd in geology. Hey, pals. Thanks for having me on another rock centric uh, podcast. <laughs> I'm excited. And our special guest today is Dr. Chip Shearer, a senior research scientist and manager. I'm about to say a lot of confusing words, so everybody hold on to their seats at the Secondary Ion Mass Spectrometry Laboratory at the Institute of. Meteoritics. Meteoritics. I almost got through that. Uh, (laughs) Is there an acronym for that? That's a bit. IOM. IOM. You know what? I like you, Chip. Um, (laughs) A senior research scientist and manager at IOM. Um, Chip's research focuses on planetary basaltic magmatism. Magmatism. Um, Volcanoes. So, okay. Magma being the key one there. Um, You have to say it like Austin Powers on this podcast the entire time. (laughs) Um, And the evolution of planetary interiors, uh, specifically Moon, Mars, and four Vesta. I'm not even done yet. Trace (laughs) element crystal chemistry of the rock forming materials and planetary sample return. Chip, that is quite the intro. Oh, yeah. Um, How do you fit that on a business card? I don't have a business card. That helps me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thanks Thanks for joining us today. Can you define any of that for us? Yeah, I like go, looking at planets and materials and rocks brought back from planets. Cool. And um, so that would be extraterrestrial rocks? It's all extraterrestrial, yeah. I like that word. That's a buzzword for us at the podcast. We have to plug that a few times. Oh, Yeah. At least once an episode. <laughs> At least once an episode. We do have to mention aliens as part of our contract. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let us know a bit more about what kind of research, you know, that you focus on and what you're doing for NASA. Well, what I'm right now is I am the co-lead scientist for this program called ANCSA. That stands for the Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis Initiative. And what we're doing is in preparation for humans going back to the moon Mm -hmm. and exploring the moon and collecting new samples, what we're doing is going back and looking at samples collected by the Apollo program, but never opened. And so it's been almost 50 years since Apollo 17. And we're looking at uh, just starting last year and this year, looking at samples that were placed in specially sealed containers or frozen for 50 years. And just to see if the approaches that they used during Apollo worked and can be used for 
the future human exploration called Artemis, the Artemis mission to the moon, and what using new technologies and new scientific concepts, what new things can we learn from these specially sealed samples? So it's almost like going back in time. They've been sealed for 30 years? 50 years. 50 years? You haven't opened these things in 50 years? Yeah, I was going to ask. We haven't. That's right. Why did we wait so long to unwrap that present? That's the coolest time capsule ever, you know? It it, it really is. Um, You know, the philosophy for the Apollo program and the Apollo scientists, again, 50 years ago, and has continued over 50 years, is that in the future, we're going to better understand the moon, develop new concepts. We're going to have new tools to look at rocks. And therefore, let's save some samples for future generations. And that's what they did. Are we reserving more? Or is this the last of the bunch? No, there are still several more that uh, we're holding on to, uh, again, for the future for another 10 or 20 years. Uh, And, you know, these are specially contained samples. And the, what I essentially did in 10 years ago, often things with NASA take longer, well, they sometimes take a long time to get things moving. (laughs) Government? No. Really? 10 years ago, I, knew that these samples that I existed and I pitched to NASA that we should have a, uh, a new program to look at these samples. And what we should do is design this program as a kind of a low cost sample return mission from the moon, because nobody has looked at these. We're using new technologies. So it's almost like going and grabbing new lunar samples without all the billion dollars of expense to return the samples. But you asked him 10 years ago, like, did your letter get lost? Like what? Well, NASA has priorities at various times. (laughs) And this wasn't necessarily a priority. And then when uh, when NASA decided and the, the national government decided to return to the moon, what they decided, what, what are, they asked the question, what are the first steps that we can take to move toward the moon? And the f- question was, let's look, let's look at these unopened samples with new technologies and uh, train a new generation of sample scientists. So when the new samples come, we will be ready. What what sorts of samples are you looking at? Uh, Well, there's one set of samples that a number of members of the team are looking at. And during Apollo 17, during the uh, second EVA, uh, that was the second uh, scientific traverse that they took in the Taurus Littrow Valley. They went to a landslide deposit that came off the mountain, what was called the South Massif. On the moon? And, 
Just to be clear, these are all names of things on the moon. The South Taurus Littrow Valley is a valley, the landing site for Apollo 17. But beautiful oh. names. It is, it is. And the mountain to the south is called the South Massif. And millions and millions of years ago, a landslide uh, occurred off the side of the mountain. And they decided they were going to pound the drill core, what's called the double drive tube, into this landslide deposit. Texans. And man. collect samples. <laughs> and they took this one sample, the lowest part of this drive tube, and put it in a sealed container and sealed it on the moon. So it was sealed on the moon. It was never contaminated with the Earth's atmosphere and it remained sealed uh, again since it was collected in 1972. And they weren't just itching to open that? Like, right? No, they, they just, well, one, they didn't have a plan to open it initially. And also, uh, soon after Apollo 17, the Apollo program was canceled. Hmm. It's always funding, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, over that short period of time from Apollo 11 to Apollo 17, it was just utterly amazing what they did. Uh, And that, you know, if you went into high school in 2019, uh, the summer before you went into high school, uh, you would have had an Apollo mission, Apollo 11. And then before you graduated from high school, four years later, the Apollo program to go to another planet would have been over. So oh, it was wow. really, really short. And they went from walking uh, hundreds of feet during Apollo 11 to traveling, you know, 20, 22 miles on a uh, rover along the surface. So it was just phenomenal in terms of what happened over those three and a half years. So I'm curious, uh, you know, you're mentioning like landslides and mountains, which I don't really think of those things when I think of the moon, honestly, I just think of like craters. Um, So that makes me wonder how are these rocks different from rocks that we would find on Earth as far as just base materials? Well, well, first, they're much older than most Earth rocks. Uh, Some of the rocks that we collected from the moon uh, are, uh, there are approximately four and 4.4 billion years old. so those are much, much older than most of the rocks. Uh, and wow. Because again, you know, the Earth is a dynamic planet. And so you have wind, you have rain, you have erosion, you have tectonics, or, you know, forming of mountains, forming mm-hmm. of oceans. Mm-hmm. And on the moon, there's very little of that. So these rocks are preserved. And so that's why there's so many ancient rocks on the moon and these large impact basins that are formed essentially 
remove or excavate the samples from the deep lunar crust and bring them to the surface. So it was a pretty old landslide or was that from an impact? No, th this landslide is probably, well, again, when you're talking old on the moon, you're talking billions of years. This landslide is probably uh, tens or maybe a hundred million years old. So it's relatively young. It's real fresh. Uh, it's, yes. And it could have been caused either by uh, another large impact on the surface of the moon, triggering this landslide, sliding down into the, the Taurus Littrow Valley, or there could have been small little faults that may have had some movement, may have, that may have triggered this landslide and slid it into the valley. I'm assuming that's not a common occurrence. There are landslide deposits all through uh, the moon. Oh. Uh, and so we don't know how common it is. Uh, and, you know, you would hate to build a lunar base uh, or lunar village uh, against a very scenic mountainous background and have a landslide, uh, you know, coming into your back door. So is that what the some of the focus for NASA is, is seeing what we can learn about the moon so that we know where to plant our next home? Uh, well, some of it is, is, is tying it to uh, how do we operate on the surface of the moon in the future? How do we collect samples? Mm. Uh, you know, there is a, a lot of interest tied to the moon with regards to uh, volatiles like ice, water, and resources. So when humans go back to the moon, we can essentially live off the land eventually, uh, use lunar soils to grow crops, uh, to use ice water to produce oxygen and perhaps fuels, use the ice water to uh, water potential you know, crops, not on the surface of the moon, but within the uh, within facilities. So understanding what resources are potentially available, how to explore for them, how to sample them are all really important. So one potential uh, outcome of this is really to uh, what can we, how can we collect samples? How do we look for water? Uh, on the lunar surface. And again, this would be primarily ice water uh, if it mm -hmm. exists, if it exists there. No, um, no, like microbial life or. No, no. Any, any moon again, lanes? During Apollo 11 through 14, you know, there was always that possibility. Uh, and so, you know, they did have scientists or astronauts placed in an incubation period for a certain amount of time. There were uh, those tardigrades on the moon for a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are those still there? Yes. 
Whoops a doodle. It's one of my favorite NASA stories. <laughs> Oops, just get an alien species. Oops. <laughs> is there is there anything interesting you're trying you're you're sort of hopeful of getting more detail in with with new techniques versus the older ones? Uh, yes. Um, well, one, uh, one thing that we're doing and we just started it and just sampled it is one of the science goals for Apollo was this core that they collected in this landslide deposit mm -hmm. that's lying on a fault. And they thought perhaps that gases from the interior of the moon would be released from that fault and trapped under this landslide deposit. And therefore they put this core down and put it in this special uh, core sample container and waited and waited and waited uh, for 50 years. And so we've just opened it up, sampled the gases inside, and we're using new techniques uh, to better understand, well, did we really capture and sample lunar gases? We, mm -hmm. we don't know yet, but we will know within the next couple of weeks. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. What procedures are gonna happen when you open up this capsule of moon rock? Well, well what we're doing is uh, we, we've already opened up this core sample vacuum container. This is the sealed container that they sealed on the moon. We opened that up uh, and we had it connected to a variety of new tools that we built just for this program to sample gases. And these are being sent to, the gases are being sent to numerous labs uh, in the US, one to the University of New Mexico, one to Washington University, St. Louis, and then there will be other samples sent to other labs throughout the world. So that's one step that we're doing with this. Following the extraction of the gas, we kind of extruded the sample from the tocor it was collected in and within what's called a glove box. It's a <laughs> box that's sealed. It's only a nitrogen atmosphere and it's separated from the Earth's atmosphere. And we're essentially chopping up the sample to send it to, again, scientists around the world who are using different tools to study this sample. And so that's the step we're at right now that, uh, and the reason why I just came back from JSC, uh, the Johnson Space Center, to see what progress they had been making on the sample. I uh, actually have a question. So you talked about like the stage you're at right now, but um, what is the first stage, you know, like what is the process when you're going to propose an idea to a big space company like NASA? Uh, you mean in terms, well, Again, this is a NASA-funded uh, initiative, mm -hmm. so it's funding scientists in the U.S. 
And then I have a number of scientists from the European Space Agency involved. And so hopefully at least some of the information that will come from this, that will go to NASA, is how effective uh, humans were and the technology was at collecting samples. And so that will, information will go to NASA and they'll incorporate it into their planning stages for Artemis, uh, the next human set of human missions that will go back to the moon. So this core sample vacuum container that we opened and are sampling, they will utilize those results to better understand how can we improve on this to collect other samples on the surface of the moon, particularly those samples that may be uh, of resource potential that humans may be able to utilize on the lunar surface. Like mining the moon? Um, to, to some degree. Probably not big open pit mining or anything like that. <laughs> but you know, there there will be uh, in some of these permanently shadowed regions of the moon, particularly the South Pole, there may be areas where they can essentially uh, easily extract the frozen water that have has been residing there for you know hundreds of millions of years. What would be the potential use for something like that? Oh, the, the use? Well, one, you know, humans, if they're on the surface of a planet, need water just to live. And so rather than bringing the water with you, which can be very expensive, you have it here. Mm-hmm. One can also utilize water in other oxygen-bearing uh, phases to essentially produce oxygen for humans to breathe. One can also use you know, hydrogen and hydrogen components to make fuel. So you don't have to bring the flu- fuel along with you. You can essentially make the fuel and the moon and utilize that to transport humans around the moon, even if they're tourists in the future, or you can use that hydrogen to launch vehicles with humans in it to Mars, for example. So rather than launching from the Earth, one can go to Mars from the moon to <laughs> Mars. What about a, Mar- a moon telescope? Uh, a number of groups have been funded to look at uh, radio telescopes on the silent backside of the moon, the side that's facing away from the Earth that has very low radio frequency noise. I was hoping that was so my people, idea. So people have <laughs> discussed that. Uh, optical microscopes or telescopes, uh, what I don't know is I think that would be somewhat difficult, at least at this stage, mm-hmm. because the moon is a very, very dusty planet. Mm. And so that's yeah. not terribly conducive to uh to telescopes, optical telescopes. I think it's interesting uh, 
calling the uh, moon a planet because uh, all of the planetary scientists we've talked to also do that. But well, it's not something that a normal listener might think of as a planet. Well, I, I probably the better term would be a planetary body. Oh, is that that's different? what I've always heard? Yeah, it's it, it's it's not a planet. It, you know, we we would probably call it the moon, a planetary body. A planetary and body. The other moons around the other planets are planetary bodies, hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. And then there's also satellite which just means anything going around a planet. Right. It, it, again, you could use those you could use those terms uh, for the moon also. Oh, okay. Um yeah, we we did a we did an episode about one of the moons off of um Saturn and they were like, "Oh yeah, as a planetary scientist, I study all of these moons." So it was it's I think it's really interesting. Oh. Um, especially since there are so many moons that are so similar to Earth, more similar to Earth and the planet that they orbit. Mm -hmm. Well, at least in terms of the size to some degree, but obviously the environment that they're in, in terms of, of um, temperatures, atmospheres, uh, everything is, is quite a bit different from the Earth. The Earth is just so so unique and i noticed that most of the thing you said the moon south pole um and you were calling it the silent side of the moon which i know maybe some of our listeners would know it as the dark side of the moon though so, i know though uh i think it was a john maybe explained this in a podcast previous that it's uh it's not dark it's just it's radio dark it's radio <laughs> dark right um so why um, are what, what's the interest in that side of the moon versus the side of the moon that we can see? Uh, well, at least in terms of uh, a radio telescope, uh, again, it's 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 dark with regards to uh, not having any Earth interference. Uh, but Artemis is looking at the South Pole. And, and, and part of you know and, and part of the South Pole is the south is is the South Pole and part of the South Pole uh, is on the the back side, the dark side and uh, a part of the what's called the South Pole Aiken basin. It's the largest basin uh, on the moon and maybe in the solar system produced by a large impactor. And so there is a substantial there's substantial interest because of the, the 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 geology of that area, not necessarily because it's on uh, part of it's on the side facing away from the Earth. It's is just more because it's been there. excavated, kind of for us. Is that What's the that? idea? Is it more the idea that it's been partially excavated for us? Yes, by that's the basin. Right. Okay. That's right. That that's one line of interest. The second interest is that that is the oldest basin on the moon. And so a lot of the other basins that you do see on the moon came after that. So there's a, a suggestion that all these basins, starting with the SPA, the South Pole Aiken Basin, and all the other basins such as Imbrium, were all formed in a short period of time. 
and that this was due to the movement of Jupiter and Saturn at about 3.9 billion years ago that disrupted the asteroid belt and sent numerous asteroids into the inner solar system where they hit the moon, the earth, all the inner bodies in the inner solar system, all the interplanetary bodies in the inner solar system. Uh, and so that's a model that could potentially be tested by sampling the SPA basin and determining its age. Jupiter and Saturn caused all that drama? Yes. Wow. How? Simply because of the change, because they're giant planets, their gravity disrupted the asteroid belt, their movement. Oh, and just that, their existence and how big they are did this. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that disrupted the asteroid belt and other small bodies and sent them heading into, many of them into the inner solar system. So just some distracting well, planets. Yeah. But one of, the, you know, one of the scientific reasons for uh, Artemis uh, going to the, uh, the south pole of the moon is partially tied to, there are a lot of interesting scientific problems, such as the age of the, the south pole Aiken Basin, but also what's really quite interesting uh, and a driver is what are these permanently shadowed regions of the moon and do they yeah. really harbor potential resources for to support human activities? Well, and I read here, um, this is from some website, News Nation, but it says uh, the moon's permanently shadowed craters are estimated to hold nearly 100 million tons of water. I'm assuming frozen. That's right. Frozen. It would be water, ice. Uh, how pure it is, we don't know. Uh, how extensive it is, how deep it is, we really don't know. And the sun day. doesn't take care of that? <laughs> oh, because they're probably shadowed. They're in craters that are shadowed from the sun. Completely. So the, the light so from deep. the sun never... Right. Oh, right. they're deep. And so some of these areas... Uh, that they're exploring have these potential resources such as water. Uh, and then there are other resources such as uh, permanent uh, sunlight where there are other areas near there that have permanent sunlight. So one can utilize solar energy as a source oh. to help support humans. So, Crafty so NASA is kind of looking for the sweet spot, if you will, uh, and finding regions like that. Oh my gosh, NASA is trying to start a moon colony, and I'm very here for it. That is so <laughs> cool. <laughs> I know like Alaska, it's like six months of sunlight and that kind of thing. So it would just be like solar plants on that side of the moon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, what's interesting is NASA's really in, in encouraging uh, private companies to be mm -hmm. involved in moving uh, from Earth to utilize the space between 
the earth and, and, and the moon, mm-hmm. uh, for satellites, etc. But also, uh, there are a number of NASA programs that help fund private companies to send landers to go to the moon, to deliver scientific packages, to perhaps robotically return samples in the future where they don't send humans. Uh, So this is a big deal. I mean, it's not only the US government and NASA, it's the private sector, it's Japan, it's the European Space Agency. Mm -hmm. So it's a human adventure rather than adventure Mm -hmm. of just a few people. And you may get your wish. You know, there are companies that are looking into space tourism, not only, you know, a quickie ride into uh, space and then back in, you know, 10, 15 minutes, but space tourism to the moon. There are companies investing in this. I am, um, I guess, it's kind of like they're, they're creating the moon into an open source program where like anyone can have access to it. But um, I, a part of me is, I know that you need that to like push progress and, and that kind of thing, especially with the way that funding is in the government. But um, part of me worries too, like how long is it before a creator has a, a sponsorship from a company or <laughs> I don't know. I guess I've been in marketing too long. That's where my brain always goes. I have a question about, this is kind of off, off topic, okay. um, but I'm curious about the instrumentation that you work with at the Institute of um, Meteoritics. Did I say that correctly this time? The IOM. The IOM. That's right. At the IOM. Um, what are these instruments that you're using? And I know, um, John, you may be curious about this too, because I know you've used instrumentation in your geology research. So like what kind of instruments are, the only thing I know of is, are those little, I've seen John with his little magnifying glass that he uses to look at stones, whatever that's called. Well, we we use, uh, when the, when we're processing samples at the Johnson Space Center, we have a tool that we use to look at the core, look at individual rocks called micro XCT. Uh, It's X-ray computed tomography. And probably some of you recall that that's kind of like, uh, it's a technology based on things like CAT scans where you can look at the interior of your body. We use micro XCT imaging to look at the interior of rocks or look at, you know, we have this long core that was in this core sample vacuum container mm-hmm. rather than uh, trying to, dis- be prior to disturbing it, to process it, we can utilize this to really look and see what's in it before we process it. So you can x-ray it. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But it's better than x-ray <laughs> because we can essentially make a cartoon of various slices through the core or the rock and look at, you know, a thousand different slices through a small rock the size of your thumbnail. Like looking Uh, at different minerals inside of the sample? Yes, yes, and different textures. And so it's a really cool technique to do that 
before you even cut up the rock or do anything else for the rock. Mm -hmm. Then what I do is I use an instrument called uh, SIMS. S -I, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, and that stands for secondary ion mass spectrometry. And what this does is focuses a small beam of ions on the order of uh, one, two, maybe 10 or 15 microns and analyzes that spot on a mineral or a rock for things like water. This, uh, this machine or, is crazy. It looks like a Robbie the Robot oh. <laughs> from Forbidden Planet. Well, I'm not sure which machine, which machine you're looking at. The cool one, I guess. Um, <laughs> the it's a yeah, secondary oh, ion mass spectrometer. Really cool. Yeah, what's your favorite gadget? Um, I at, at least right now, I really like uh, um, the XCT uh, tool simply because it, it's the starting point when you're kind of opening up any rock or any sample. This is the starting point, and you kind of take a look to see what's there. Mm -hmm. So are you, I guess there's the idea of, of balance between um, sending up a bunch of devices and, you know, surveying an unlimited amount based on time versus taking that same amount of mass and space and bringing back samples. Uh, do you feel like it's more important to bring back a ton of samples or to send some of this like uh, tech up there and do like in-situ kind of work? You know, I, I hate to be uh, evade the question, but <laughs> you, you need to do both because, you know, when you get a sample, it tells you something about the sample itself. However, if you do uh, a bunch of high-tech equipment that you send to the surface of the planet, it allows you to take that sample and put it in a much larger planetary context. Uh, so if you take a little basalt, if you will, or magma, a crystallized magma, and you only have a thumbnail sample, but then you have orbital data, you have boots on the ground that allows you to place that little thumbnail sample into a local, a regional, a planetary-wide scale. It makes the sample much, much more scientifically valuable, and it makes the data that you've collected on the planetary surface much more valuable. Plus, in addition, you know, if we go back and we want to sample some of these frozen uh, so, uh, lunar soil deposits and permanently shadowed regions. You know, when you collect the sample, you're not really quite sure how much you perturb the sample, you know, destroyed mm -hmm. some of its sample just by sampling it. And so if you can do kind of a in situ uh, measurement, of that sample before you even collect it, you have some types of information. And then when you collect it and return it back home, 
you have another set of information and you can really combine that into a much richer, fuller understanding of the material collected. This is kind of like way backtracking, but uh, you oh, saying okay. you saying basalt and magma uh, reminded me. Magma. So magma. magma. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the beginning, when we were introducing you, we said the words planetary basaltic magmatism. Um, yeah. Can you like define that? Because I understand those words individually, but together. I'm not exactly sure what Mm -hmm. you mean. Same. Well, if you're in Flagstaff, which Mm -hmm. many of you are, you'll notice there's lots of volcanoes around Mm -hmm. Flagstaff and lava flows. The same thing is in Albuquerque. And then if you look at the moon, these large impact basins, uh, they're filled with with these basalts. And basalts are kind of like windows into looking into a planet's insides because most of the basalts were produced by melting of a planet's interior. And so rather than drilling a deep, 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 deep hole into the mantle of the interior of the moon, you just can sample one of these basalts that came Mm. from there and that will tell you a lot about the interior uh, of the moon, of the moon, how it was formed, how old it was. Uh, some of the basalts that we got from the moon, uh, for example, uh, suggested to us back in the 1970s when the first samples were looked at in the early 1970. Uh, that there was what's called a magma ocean uh, on the moon, that when the moon formed, it melted to form a large uh, ocean of magma. What? (laughs) Wait, okay, I'm just going to backtrack again here. I'm going to ask you a really (laughs) dumb question, Chip. I'm so sorry. So does the moon have a core? I just picture it as just a rock, an ice rock floating around. No, it, it has a core. It probably at one time had a magnetic field. It had a a man. It has a mantle, and it has a crust. So, and they had magma like on the surface. Well, at one time when it first accreted or formed, uh, there was so much energy that was generated by all these particles gravitationally coming together that it generated so much heat that the moon melted either partially or totally. Wow. That's nuts. I mean, there's a reason why the Apollo missions trained in in geologic sampling out here in Flag. Yes. Right, because it's it's basalt everywhere. Uh, you can go check out SP Crater. That was one of the training sites for um, doing seismic. Uh, and it's a really, really cool basaltic flow. And then the um, the rocks leading up to the Endpoy uh, yeah. telescope are all big chunks of basalt with really, really pretty olivine in them. Yeah. And if you're ever going in there hiking or biking up in Flagstaff, uh, dear listeners, um, check it out. They're really cool. They're very pretty. Huge, yeah. huge olivines. 
And, and all of those, all those magomas originally <laughs> came from the Earth's interior. So it tells huh. you something about uh, at least the source where those came from. Also, for Flagstaff, you know, the uh, Artemis uh, uh, astronomer, uh, not astronomers, astronauts are also going to be partially trained uh, in the Flagstaff staff area, what? in addition to being trained probably in Taos, New Mexico, and probably a lot of other places. Well, they need to get up to Lowell, man. Right? Oh, my gosh. We'll roll out that red carpet. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. So I'm curious, what other planetary bodies do you nerd out on, Chip? Like, what others do you love besides the moon? Uh, I really love Mars. Mars is really a solid different. one. It is different from uh, the moon. Uh, mm-hmm. It's further away. It may eventually be a target for humans in the distant future. I know uh, yeah. NASA is, you know, talking and other people are talking about uh, returning to or going to Mars with humans in 20 years. I think that's a giant leap. It's oh, yeah. very, very dangerous. Uh, and it's very, very far. Yeah. We yeah. talked to um, uh, Rudolf Opperman, Dr. Rudolf Opperman, who works uh, with, I think, JPL. Um, and he was talking about life on Mars. And he was like, yeah, it's mostly just like we want to be there. So that's why we're <laughs> investing a lot in Mars. We want to we live there. <laughs> I would never, but um, well, <laughs> sounds with, horrible. With the moon, it's just a few day trip there and back. Yeah, uh, right. for Mars, it's much more of a commitment. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you brought up that you like Mars because I do have a question. Okay. Um, so Mars, the Moon, uh, they're both relatively geologically inactive, right? So what is going on? inside their cores you know like what's going on in the interior of these planets or well planetary bodies well you know in you know the moon is not entirely dead uh there there may there may (laughs) be uh some activity in the crust uh where you have movement along faults and there often are little nests of earthquakes and the moonquakes, moonquakes, moonquakes. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's cool. But, but again, I just think I read just a little while ago within the last few days that the, uh, the InSight mission to Mars detected a big swarm of fairly intense earthquakes. Um, earthquakes, I'm sorry. Marsquakes. Marsquakes. <laughs> Marsquakes. Is that really what they like? Is that legitimately what they call them? Well, moonquakes, yes. Really? Mars oh, I was quakes. making a joke. Marsquakes, <laughs> I would assume that's the proper terminology. Oh, it sounds so funny. So they're not geologically inactive. Uh, they're they're less than they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But um, you know, there is some degassing on the moon uh, still yet of you know loss of volatiles from the lunar interior. Uh, 
and Mars, uh, you know, there is activity on the uh, Martian interior. What does degassing look look like? What is uh... Uh, it? Well, you can't see it because it's gas. Uh, <laughs> essentially, uh, in the moon, it occurs often around the rims of, of impact features or craters or impact basins. There'll be some degassing or loss of gas. Uh, and there's some individuals that uh, have made the observation that they think there could be some loss of volatiles fairly recently. Uh, this is lunar recently, uh, near the, uh, older. So a million years ago or something like that. <laughs> were previous volcanic eruptions. Oh my gosh. Cool. So I have a random question for okay. you, Chip. Um, so these moon rocks that you're, you've unearthed this core sample, um, were you able to interact with the sample yourself? Oh, yes, yes. Touch and, it and, 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 and they send the samples to me. So I have a bunch of them at the University of New Mexico. And I so, have students and, uh, and co-workers working on them as we speak, actually. So um, two follow-up questions. One, um, can you keep any for yourself to make a really cool ring or something out of it? You could, but uh -huh. you end up in jail. Oh, you would. Oh, no. Okay. Well, um, and then I second, have, I have to have uh, a well-defined security system uh, in all my labs uh, when I have Apollo samples in them, uh, and I have to sign all sorts of security documents. Ah. Uh, and I have to, every time a sample comes in, I weigh it. If it's a destructive analysis, I have to record how much I've destroyed. Uh, and then eventually, if there's any material left, I do have to send it back with a really? known weight. Wow. So I guess that kind of answers my second question, which might reveal more about my personality than I would like to share. But... When you have this moon rock, I feel like my first instinct would be to either like smell it or lick it just to like out of curiosity. <laughs> Is there a geological purpose? Why? Because I know like geologists. It could be halite. You know, you got to lick it to find out. Right? Don't geologists <laughs> lick rocks? Like that would be the first thing I would want to do. I'd want to smell the skin and see what it smells like. I'd want to lick it and, you know, absorb some of its powers or whatever. But I am curious. Like, is that? Well, well you know when... Some of, during the Apollo missions, uh, when samples were returned and stowed in the crew captain cabin, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. the astronauts all uh, thought they smelled something that smelled like gunpowder or something along those lines. Oh, cool. So, you know, you're not really that far off. I don't think I you know, go ahead and, and lick a lunar sample. <laughs> uh, Not even just a little uh, bit. But I, would, I could potentially smell one. Uh, and, and again, you know, uh, at the observatory, there are lots and lots of basalts. I understand mm -hmm. that one can bump into and see on the ground. Give it a lick and see. <laughs> <laughs>
to wipe it down first. Wasn't there an astronaut who found out he was allergic to moon dust? Um, I think to some degree, all of the astronauts had some sort of skin irritation to the moon dust. What? Because, That's interesting. Well, the the surface of the, well, the moon dust itself has very ragged edges because it's been sitting out in a vacuum and bombarded by micrometeorites forming a variety of glasses with fairly sharp uh, surfaces. So uh, I, I know talking to Harrison Schmidt, he mentioned that in some cases it looked like the moon dust just by friction was carving up uh, and damaging his spacesuit. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. So it's like fiberglass. So, yeah. And so there, there are uh, potential uh, health issues potentially tied to long stays on the moon, uh, as you would expect with any very mm. dusty environment. Yeah. Yeah. What I, uh, what I had read is that he had like, like an allergic reaction, like he was sneezing and coughing and all that, mm-hmm. uh, which Crazy. in space does not sound very fun. Cause no, it's not. And you can <laughs> imagine getting moon dust, uh, you know, very, very fine dust up your nose into your lungs <sighs> and have, with some of the minerals having a really sharp s- surface uh, that, that, can be very irritating. Yeah. Uh, but from what I know, um, you know, you know, all of the astronauts I think have have had physicals maybe once a year just to monitor their health. You know, 30, 40, 50 years after uh, being on the moon, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I don't know what the results of those are, but NASA mm-hmm. takes them very seriously. Uh, in terms of what are the effects of leaving the Earth and operating on a planetary surface. Yeah. And what would the surface of Mars be like in comparison to the moon? Uh, I think primarily because there's a little bit more of an atmosphere Mm -hmm. uh, rather than an exosphere, which is just where space is touching the surface of the planet. I think you'll probably have... Uh, you won't, you, you'll still have, you could potentially have fine dust and fine material, but I don't think the edges of the soils are as ragged and as sharp as the moon would be. And again, Mm -hmm. at one time on the, on Mars, you had, uh, you potentially had, uh, activity of water. You clearly have, you still have wind activity, uh, and all of that. Uh, does have an impact on the characteristics of a planet's surface, a planet's soil. And the, the soil's red on Mars, right? We call it like the red planet. Is that a lot of that any sort of atmosphere disturbance or is the rock actually red? It's probably due to interaction of the rock with the atmosphere ah. and and perhaps oxidation uh, of the soil. And, you know, if you have something like a nail and you leave it out and you have a rusty nail, it's kind of a rusty or red color. So, you know, there are, you know, issues that could be partially ascribed to that. (laughs) 
Well, it looks like our time is up, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It always goes by so ridiculously fast. Yep. Um, but I really want to thank you for being here, Chip. We have really enjoyed having, or at least I know I've really enjoyed having you here. Um, and to our listeners, I do want to remind you guys to check out our Twitter and our Discord. Uh, we started posting uh, a little bit more frequently. And if you use the hashtag AskStarStuff, uh, we can answer any questions you guys might have in future episodes. And uh, also, follow Lola on Instagram. We have a lot of really cool stuff on there. We do have cool stuff on there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for talking about uh, the moon with us, about Mars. And, yeah, it was a good time. Yeah, Yeah, thanks for nerding out with us, Chip. And I really enjoyed meeting you all. This was really a lot of fun. Awesome. And and thanks, John, for your rock rock knowledge. Oh, it's great. I I love talking about this stuff. This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you.